you think about stories, what, what comes to your mind about stories? Just in general, not all stories, or maybe not all stories, but the vast majority of stories. You know, typically stories have a protagonist. That's what you know, people that study literature call it. And, and a protagonist is the, the person who's, you know, the person that everybody's for. Everybody wants that individual to accomplish their mission, their objective, their goal. Perhaps it's solving some sort of mystery, some sort of crime that was committed. Perhaps it is, you know, uh, surviving the odds of being out in the wild. Perhaps it's, you know, uh, working through a conflict within their family. Perhaps it's, you know, something else. And, you know, because that's what good stories are made out of, we're, we're familiar with these ideas. As we tell our own stories, typically somebody is the person who's the hero of the story or who we want to be the hero of the story. And the same thing is true as we look at Scripture. As you look at even the book of Acts, there is a hero throughout the pages of the purpose of the book of Acts. And the hero is God. The hero is not the various individuals who are mentioned, the hero is God. This is God's plan that is unfolding. Accomplished as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and equipping the saints through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's plan. And as we look at the life of Paul, God has a plan for him that God is going to be shown to be the hero of the story as this mission is accomplished. And so if you think back with me, what is Paul's mission? Paul's mission is that he is to take the gospel to Jews, to Gentiles, and he is going to present the gospel to kings. And he's recently been told that this is going to include his being taken to Rome to declare the gospel even there. And God is going to ensure that his mission why? Because your story, my story, Paul's story, is not about us as individuals, but about our God. And about him accomplishing his mission in our lives. And as you and I choose to submit ourselves to God's plan, God unfolds his plan and he accomplishes his mission in our lives. Trust that you've found Acts chapter 22, verse 30 and following. If you would stand with me as we read God's word. Acts chapter 22, verse 30, we'll read through verse 35. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly in the, at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in a good, all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do not command, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I do not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, 
he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they had fat would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you are going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, "This, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you, ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea, third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him, deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accuser to state before you the charges against him. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The theme of the passage is this. Rejoice in God's accomplished mission through you.
your obedience and love for Christ. Rejoice in God's accomplished mission through your obedience and love for Christ. Notice with me, as Paul begins, he really earnestly seeks to establish his credibility. Notice that as all this starts, his character is attacked, and your, your character is going to be attacked and questioned at times as well. Notice this is what's been happening for a good while now, right? He's under attack. People are accusing him of disobeying God, of disobeying God's laws, of not being willing to submit himself to God's plan, to how God wants him to live. And as a result, as he enters into this questioning time in verse 1, notice how he starts. He begins by demonstrating true love for them. Paul enters in and he begins by saying, men and brethren. This is the very same thing that we saw him do earlier as he addressed them earlier. He's highlighting the fact that he is in relationship with them, that he cares for them, that he has a desire to see them flourish and do well. He respects them. He's demonstrating, I believe, just as he begins his defense once again. He's tried previously to proclaim to them the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the complete work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God's plan for him to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the known world. But these people have rejected it. Yet as he begins again, instead of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, forget it, you don't actually care, I'm just going to, you know not even try, he continues to demonstrate love and care for these people. I think even in this, he is seeking to establish his credibility. Notice, though, as he continues, he highlights specifically his desire to maintain a clear testimony. Believers then seek to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. Notice how he proceeds. He begins by this entreaty to the fact that he's one of them that he loves them, that he cares for them. That's why he's doing what he's doing. He's not doing this out of hostility, out of hate, or desire to malign them, or to alienate himself from them. He wants them to be united to himself. He wants them to be united to the Christ he proclaims. He wants them to be restored to God. They don't want that. And they don't believe that he has that. But, and so notice what he proclaims. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You may think that's kind of hard for Paul to claim. I mean, Paul is a man who we know was a co-conspirator in the murder of Stephen and was seeking to arrest and, and persecute other believers. How is this a person who can then claim that he has sought to have a clear conscience before God? Well, he did those things in a pursuit of a clear conscience before God. That's why he did those things. But when he realized that it was contrary to God's will, remember how Christ comes to him in Acts chapter 9 and asks him, why are you persecuting me? He realizes, oh no, what I thought I was doing in pursuit of love for a clear conscience for the God I proclaim to love was actually an attack against the God whom I proclaim to love. What does he do? He repents of that and he turns and he spends his entire life in so much so that as he writes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the grace of God worked more abundantly in him than the other apostles because he was as one who was untimely born. That the grace of God 
miraculously appeared to him so undeserving that his response was just to abundantly serve the Lord. And so he says, I've done this in a clear conscience. And as you and I seek to do that, it's going to require that you and I spend time in the Word of God. How do you and I develop a clear conscience before God? It's through our relationship with the Word of God. As we grow to know the Word of God, as we grow to love the Word of God, as we grow in our knowledge of God and our love for God, it's going to flow out in acts of obedience and acts of faith that demonstrate that we do have a clear conscience before God. Because the things that we know that are wrong, we're stopping. And the things that we know that we should be doing, we are beginning to pursue them in obedience and in faith. And so he's really calling upon you and I to pursue a clear conscience. How? By knowing and loving our God. Serving him to the best of our ability. That is what he's calling us to do. I believe that this is one of the foundational things that allows us then to accomplish the mission of God. If you and I don't have a love for God, if you and I don't have a love for the Word of God as God reveals Himself to us, how are we going to do it faithfully following God's plan and accomplishing the mission that He has for each one of our lives as individuals? Not very well. Because we're living in rejection to it. And so this is foundational to God accomplishing His mission. Is your willingness to humble yourself under God's Word respond in obedience to his word. So we must regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. That the gospel is what will sanctify us. And that as we do so, that we choose to submit to it. Notice though that he doesn't only seek to have a clear conscience before God. Believers also confess their sins to those who are outside. Notice how this all unfolds in the following verses. Um, Ananias, verse 2, he says that he's to be struck on the mouth because of what he said. And notice Paul's response. And this is actually going to take place. God will strike you. God's going to you know, punish you for what you've done, you whitewashed wall. This man is was a horrible, horrible man. He would beat the other priests to take their tithe money so that he could line his own pocket. He was actually called before Caesar, and it sounds like, from what we can gather historically, that he bribed off other Roman officials who then went and told Caesar to let him go, and they went back and he did the same thing again. Eventually culminating in the Jewish public rising up and saying, no more, and they just got enough with him, and they killed him. So this actually happens, okay? God actually does deal with this man, eventually. And so Paul's words are actually, in a very real sense, prophetic. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you said to judge me according to the law, and do, not and do you command me to be struck with contrary to the law? But notice how the people respond. They respond, they're like, how dare you speak to the high priest in such a way? And the commentators debate this, and I'm not sure I have a passionate opinion on what exactly Paul did wrong, but it seems to me he did do something whether he shouldn't have said this at all, whether he shouldn't have said it in the tone that he did, or whether he shouldn't have addressed the guy in the way he did some other way, I don't know exactly. 
But as you look at the following verses, notice how Paul responds. He's continuing to seek to have credibility among them. I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He not only seems to apologize for his action, but he also points to the scriptural foundation for why he shouldn't have done what he did. Well, he's done it in a way that he did. Notice what he's trying to do. He's seeking to establish that he is a sinner. And his only hope is in Christ. That's where our only hope. You and I need to be willing to confess sin. It establishes our credibility amongst ourselves. It establishes our credibility with God. And it allows us to actually submit to the word of God. It's going to allow us to accomplish the mission that God has for us. God can't accomplish his mission in our lives. God can't use us and the people around us here at church to minister to their spiritual needs. God can't use us and our neighbors to reach people for Christ that he wants to see come to Christ. If we are living in sin and we don't have the testimony that actually tells the world, in addition to our words, that we have been radically transformed by the power of the gospel. And so he submits himself to them. Notice Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, he handles the word of God in such a way that it demonstrates his conscience is clear. I think that primarily here is how he's publicly telling them about the truth. Okay, what he's actually telling them they need to do. He's taking the word of God and he's using it correctly. But you can't really do that if your own life isn't allowing the word of God to wash over you, to reveal your sin to you, so that you can actually have credibility to call other people to live in obedience. And so he calls them to obedience. He calls himself to obedience. And that prepares him then to continue accomplishing the mission that God has for him. Credibility is only established as we study the word, understand it, and willingly submit ourselves to it. And notice, it's really what he does going forward. Okay? In verse 5, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The word of God comes into his life. The word of God reveals to him error. And then he willingly chooses to submit himself and lives in obedience as a result. And that's what God wants for each one of us. God wants us to love him, to love his word, to sit under his word, both publicly and privately, so that God's word reveals to us error in our own lives, so that we can then go and accomplish the mission of God that he's given us. See, but it all starts with establishing credibility. How are you doing with that? Are there secret things in your life that you are unwilling to forsake and bring to God and ask him for his mercy in? If so, it's going to be very hard for you to fulfill God's plan. It's going to be very hard for you to honestly call people also to obedience to God's word 
if you're not living with me. It's going to be very hard for you to look at your neighbor, your coworker, your family member who's lost in sin and call them to repentant faith in Christ if you yourself don't have that type of credibility. See, God's mission is going to be accomplished. And if you and I want to be part of God's mission as it unfolds, we need to be working to establish credibility by submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Make it a priority to hear God's Word corporately. Make it a priority to hear God's Word in your day-to-day lives. And as you do so, and as God's Word reveals to you things that you need to change, take steps to make those changes. If you've sinned against somebody, confess that. That's what Paul models for us. But the text goes on. Notice Paul's hope is actually in the resurrection. And Paul doesn't ever miss an opportunity to proclaim the resurrection. Sometimes he does it and he he highlights all the details, and other times he doesn't have the time to do that. This is one of those times where he doesn't have the time to highlight all the various details of the resurrection. But he once again brings them back to the core idea of Christianity, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and there in his hope. And while his explanation of all this would be drastically different from what the Pharisees understand, he once again highlights the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, there's only one hope you can take to the grave. You can have a million dollars in your bank account. But guess what? When you die, it doesn't go with you. You can have a really big a big family that loves you. You may have a packed out funeral home when you die. But guess what? They're staying here. You may have a great business that you build, but guess what? When you die, it stays here. You may accomplish multiple levels on a video game, but guess what? It stays here. Nothing lasts past the grave except your hope in Christ. And so he highlights this idea that there is hope. Notice he, he notices that there's this disagreement with them, and it's a core disagreement about the hope of the resurrection. And so he gets up and he says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope. It's interesting that he, he highlights that it's the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. Why, why is there hope for the dead? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Without his resurrection, there is no resurrection subsequent. There's only one hope, and it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, when you die, you have no hope. You will spend eternity in a place separated from a holy God. Separated from your loved ones. Separated from peace. But if you place your faith in Christ, there's eternal joy, eternal blessing, and eternal hope. And so he highlights this important hope. He maintains his his central focus. It'd be easy to lose your central focus in a time like this, right? 
it's easy for us to lose our central focus as we go through even, you know, very low-key trial stuff again, right? Why do we get upset about, you know, somebody asking us the same question, like toddlers? Toddlers like to ask the same question, and you respond to that question like six, seven, eight times, and you're like, eight times, like, yes, right? Why do we do that? Because our desire in that moment is not in the fact that there is a resurrection, that I have hope for that. My hope and my my desire is caught up in why won't this child listen to the first eight yeses that I gave them in response to this really unsubstantial question that I've already answered seven times. And it's like answers that they want. I don't even understand. Like, you know, we do it too. But this is a huge moment in the life of Paul. And he maintains his hope. And he points other people to the hope. The resurrection of Jesus then assures us that one day God will raise the dead to receive eternal life and eternal death. Notice he highlights the idea of judgment, right? I am the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. I am the judge. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Why are the dead raised? They're raised for judgment. That's why they're going to be raised. And they're going to either be declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus, or they're going to be declared guilty and sent to eternal punishment. He says the hope is all centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he points them to the hope. Jesus then secures our hope through his death and burial, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul highlights that this is his central concern. And this should be your central concern and my central concern. This is what the mission is centrally about. You may have great credibility, but if you have great credibility, but you make the primary thing of your life something other than Christ, your family, your finances, your car, your house, whatever it is, that game that you like to play. My daughters like to do puzzles. Maybe it's that 48-piece puzzle that you're going to do before you go to your nap at 1.30. Whatever that thing you make more important, you find your hope in, even if you have credibility, if your hope is off, your mission is going to be skewed. You won't have the right mission. He maintains his right focus, and as he does so, he's able to accomplish the mission of God. Notice the result is that they just go into a whole argument amongst themselves. They even forget why they're there. Verse 7, and when they had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees stated that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And then they get into such a big fight, and they're fighting about what Paul has said, that the commander is convinced that they're going to rip him apart. It's literally the idea is that they're going to rip him apart. Like, one arm on that side, one foot, one arm on that side, one foot on that side, and one foot on that side. Like, that's the, the word that he's using. is Like, a very brutal word. This is the consequence. 
But notice what happens. That in the midst of all this, how do you and I respond? We rejoice in God's protection. We rejoice in God's protection. Notice how the text highlights this. We're going to skip verse 10. We'll come back to it in a moment here. Verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. What is he doing? He's saying, be confident that God will accomplish his mission in the world. The, the, the command to be of good cheer is literally, be confident, be courageous. Because his hope isn't who he is. His hope isn't in who the commander is. His hope isn't in swaying the Sadducees and the Pharisees to accept a position that somehow allows him to be. His hope is in God. His hope is in the mission of God. And God comes to him and he says, I, I promise that you're going to accomplish in your, mission, your mission. Because for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Your mission is not completed. But when your mission is accomplished, you may die. But until your mission is accomplished, you will not die. God's going to protect you until he is complete with you. And we don't know as people today when that is going to be complete. But there's great hope in knowing that God's going to keep us secure until whatever the plan that he has for us, ordained before we were ever born, will be accomplished in our lives before we die. And so he tells them, be courageous. He reminds him that you've been faithful in the past and I've been faithful to you. Think of the many times in which Paul's life has been spared. There have been numerous times in which Paul faced situations that, humanly speaking, the man should have died. And yet God spared him. Fought beasts, was left for dead after being beaten. Multiple times he was arrested. The Jews sought to kill him numerous times, but God delivered him. And he says, I have accomplished my mission in your life up to this point. I'm going to be faithful to you until you accomplish your mission again. Be courageous. God protects his servants to accomplish their mission. You know, your mission is not something you get to choose, though. God gets to choose what your mission is. And if you're running from God's mission in your life, God is going to know that. And God will deal with you. God has sovereignly and graciously preordained your mission for your life. And there's great hope and there's great peace knowing that God is in control of these events. But notice also that not only is he confident in God's mission, He's confident that God will accomplish his mission in his life. And we too can be confident that God will accomplish his mission in our life. We can also be confident because God uses unique means to protect his servants. Notice the various people who are involved in protecting the Apostle Paul throughout the remainder of this chapter. Verse 10 is the commander, right? 
Now there arose a dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take them by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. This is the same man that, you know, just a little bit ago, he was going to like give Paul such a beating that Paul very easily could have died from it. God's using really unique means to rescue. And notice as you enter into verse 12 and following, the Jews have this plot. They're going to kill him. This is, this is a plot with 40 conspirators and whoever's on the Sadducees probably side of the Sanhedrin. They're going to the high priest. The high priest is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the ones that are at, mad at him. This is not a plot that includes hundreds of people. Like most plots, they're hard to uncover when you only have you know 50 or so people that are involved in it. But notice how God works. He brings secret plots and makes them revealed. By people that you would not expect to learn of secret plots. The nephew of Paul. Notice verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We don't know really anything about this guy. First time he's mentioned. We didn't know that Paul had a sister up until this point. We don't know if this guy's a believer not a believer. God uses unique means. Because God is not controlled by human beings, human means, or what we may think are the natural outcome of events to accomplish his mission. He's going to do what he wants to do. But not only that, he also uses the mighty force of the Roman Empire. The, the young man comes, he tells Paul, Paul tells him to the centurion to take him to the commander, the commander takes him aside learns of what's going on and says don't tell anybody and then he immediately musters nearly half his forces, the commander is probably in charge of a thousand troops and notice he sends 470 of those guys with Paul out of the primary Roman fortress in Jerusalem to ensure that Paul is safely delivered to the next place. Like, what, what commander does that for like an obscure Jewish Roman to send half your force in the middle of this really place that's filled with great unrest, Jerusalem? Nobody liked the Romans. They all hated them. It was, it was regularly occurring that, you know, there were terrorist people that would hide little knives in their coats and they'd walk up to Romans and just stab them and then run away and drop the dagger and they'd run into the crowd. It's not the type of place that you just send half of your troops away. But that's what he does. I'm sure that he's protected. See, God is not limited in how he will act to preserve the life of his faithful servants to accomplish their mission. God is not but I believe that God specifically does this for those who seek to establish the credibility that Paul demonstrates and maintain their hope in the sufficiency of Christ's resurrection. Because those are people who are in a traje trajectory with what they can do individually to accomplish God's mission. And God delights in coming alongside people like that to accomplish his mission, to 
continue to demonstrate to the watching world that he is a powerful, omnipotent God who will accomplish his mission in the God promises and instructs us to be confident in him. God also uses many unique means to protect his servants. And that's not something that just happened back in the day. There are modern day stories of God using very unique means to protect and care for his servants. So as we think about application, are you one of God's servants? Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Notice that's, that's Paul's source of hope. Source of hope as he thinks about his own sin. It's his source of hope as he thinks about his death. And it's the hope that he promises the world. That's what he highlights. Do you have that hope? Do you know that if you were to die today, that you would be with Christ? Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you? Is your life characterized by a pursuit of a good conscience before God and man? You have to establish that identity. And it really has to start with pursuing accountability and credibility before God. You know, God's going to know your heart far quickly, more quickly than we see your heart. Change is slow. Whatever that change is. Change is slow. But are you making progressive steps to show that you love the Word of God, that you love the God of the Bible, and that you're seeking to live in obedience day by day to the Word of God? If you are, God will know. And at some point, those around you, unbelievers and believers alike, will see evidence that you are pursuing faithfulness and obedience to the word of God. And if God should choose, it will open opportunities for you to minister in ways and to people that you otherwise would not have opportunities to minister. You and I need to establish a life that's characterized by a good conscience before God and before unbelievers. God desires his servants to live in pursuit of obedience to his word. Does that characterize your life? Is the hope of the resurrection your primary hope? What do you proclaim as your hope? Is your hope the weekend? Is, is your hope some, you know, delicacy that you look forward to eating at the end of the day or at the end of the month or when you hit this goal? Is your hope, you know, one day I will accomplish the mission of this video game and I will conquer it and, you know, I'll move on to a different video game. Or is your hope Christ has died for me, Christ lives for me, I will be resurrected and I will be with Christ. What is your hope? Your hope is not in Christ. Not that you can't enjoy these other things. They can't be your hope. Because they don't last. 
And then finally, do you trust that God will accomplish his mission in your life? Do you trust that God's going to accomplish his mission in other people's lives? If so, you should trust his word, you should follow his word, you should live in obedience to his word, knowing that God will accomplish what he plans to accomplish. And it may not take place on the timeline that you desire or that I desire, and it may have rocky roads for you to pass through. It may have horrible valleys but if we know that it's God's plan, if we know that it's God's path, we can trust him to see us through. Would you bow your heads with me? As we walk through this passage, perhaps one of these, these questions that I worked through in the last few minutes has prompted a desire in your heart to seek additional counsel. If you would like to talk with me in greater detail about something, would you just look up and make eye contact with me? to follow up with you. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can trust you, that we can rely upon you. We pray that you would help us to be people who are establishing credibility in our obedience and in our faithfulness to your word. We pray that you would help us to be people who are um, finding our joy and our hope in the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that as we go through the, the trials, the hardships, the difficulties of this life, that we would be able and willing to trust you to accomplish your mission. That we would be courageous people in the midst of the events that you bring us to, knowing that you have foreplanned all these events. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our final song. Be blessed assurance. Amen.